Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome along to the Rocky Road Boxing Podcast with me, Kevin Byrne. I've landed here at the home of my good friend Eamon Carr, a man I sat ringside on many a fight with. Uh, Eamon's a renaissance man, a musician, playwright, poet, radio presenter, journalist, author. What have I left out, Eamon? That's dreadful. It makes me sound like a real chancer. <laughs> <laughs> they call them renaissance men these days, I think. Ah, that's, yeah. That's a, that's a, I always think that's a phrase where it's like a catch-all for a, 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 what is it? A jack of all trades. Yeah, well. <laughs> Master of none. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, yeah, you know, that sort of covers it. But, you know, um, I did have a, yeah, you know, I, I, yeah, I was in a band. I was, I was in Horseps for, well, Horseps all through the 70s was a band. Mm. And then then we took a, a hiatus, if you like, in the uh, in 1980. And, um, and I, Johnny Fee and myself played together in the band for a few years. And I was working with other bands. I was producing stuff. I was producing bands in London and one thing and another. And I started doing some magazine articles and just people would, you know, would, would would contact you and say, listen, could you write something about whatever, something to do with music usually? And I did, and one thing led to another, and the next thing is I knew I was I was writing in the, in the Evening Herald at the time, and the brief, you know, was initially about, about the music industry, about music, and then there were general features, and then there were sort of, you know, interviews, uh, a thing called Face to Face, which was a tricky enough one because you had to go and and uh, the, the format was question and answer. So you could ask your questions. So you weren't really writing color around it. You were basically having to rely on the person answering the question. Mm-hmm. But you also had had plenty of questions to ask as well. So you had to do a bit of work. And the, and the clients were really varied as well. It was, it was, it was uh, like a service, for want of a better word. It had to be a fairly star-studded repertoire. So I started with Big Jack with Charlton, who was magnificent. And answer anything. Yeah, well I had to I, the weird thing was I I I went down to the sports department in the indoor and I said, have you got enough of Jack Charlton? Of course, the guys were like a cabal at the time, you know, it was like they were a sort of a like a medieval union, you know, a guy who did music coming down from up above on the Features floor, you know, mm. in their feet. What would you want, Jack Charlton's number for? The editor says, I have to interview him, lads. 
like accidentally stumbling into the wrong part of Belfast so, on a boxing trip. Precisely, <laughs> yeah, yeah, precisely. And uh, so I gave me the number and one lad said he leech alive. I went, right, okay, yeah, cool. Challenge and accepted. Look at, I mean, everything is a challenge and, you know, and that's why we like boxing so much. But So I rang Jack and he answered. And I said, hello, Mr. Charlton, same carrier with independent newspapers in Dublin. And, oh, bloody hell, have you not got enough fucking interviews with me over there? Yeah. I laughed. I said, listen, Jack, I don't want to talk to you about, you know, Liam's hamstring or somebody's Achilles or any of that stuff. I said, you know, I want to talk about the good stuff. He went, what? What? And I said, Stan Martinson, you know, and Billy Wright and, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Will you be at the hotel on Sunday? I said, what? The hotel? Come up to the hotel on Sunday and we'll do the interview. Okay, good luck. And uh, up to the team hotel on Sunday. And we chatted, brought me into the, into the uh, dining room. She said, come in and have your dinner. I said, no, no, no. She said, I can't talk to her, mum. He's eating his dinner. You know, eat your dinner and enjoy it. You know, come in. Real. The language was wonderful, you know. And... Uh, so we sat at the table at Morris Setters, and uh, there was some mention about, uh, oh, yeah, it was, it was Steve Staunton had, had he arrived. And so I said, I don't know, boss. And I said, yeah, he's outside in the bar. Roll. I said, no, it's cool. I said, I, I, I happened to notice that he was drinking orange. I said, and he's with his family. Yeah. He said, all right, well, yeah, good, he said. And I said, by the way, I said, I mean, the good thing about Staunton, I says, you know, is because of his GA background, he's an incredible kick of a dead ball. And they played a match, and I'm trying to remember who exactly it was against. It might have been, might have been Tunisia or Morocco, I can't remember. Tunisia, possibly. North African team. And it was a friendly, I think we were friendly, one afternoon. It was in the afternoon in the old Lansdowne, right? And Charlton and Setters were sitting. The dugout was below where I was sitting. I was sitting with a bunch of lads from the Hill Pub in Ranelagh. And the guys from the kebab shop were behind us, right? And they were supporting the visiting team. And Staunton kicked a ball free from the corner of Havelock Square. And the ball sailed through the air and landed nearly out the gate at the, at the dart. Hmm. And we all went, holy God. And, and Jack stood up and said, and they looked at each other, and we registered that, you know. And I reminded him, I said, remember that? Uh, I was against Yugoslavia. No, it wasn't. It was against Tunisia. Yugoslavia. I said, Tunisia. And then I realized I was having an argument with Charlton this before we even started the interview. And I said, well, I knew I was right. And I said, I said, well, I, because I, I remember the kebab shop, lads. And he says, um, I could see Setter's eyes were twinkling. And Jack turned to Setter's and said, what's it, Yugoslavia? The lad's right, boss. <laughs> yeah, and I yeah. said, listen, Jack, I don't want to start a row. You're the, you, I said, you're the boss. That's when he turned to Setter's. He said, have you got the tape recorder? I said, I have. Put it up there. And I ran out. I had a C90 cassette. I ran out of tape. He was fucking brilliant. The stuff we talked about. I got two double-page spreads and a, th- and a, and a fifth page in, in the sports department. 
the following week uh-huh. as well. Yeah. So I got my own back. Have some of that. And that's, that started. I mean, and after that, it was everybody from, you know, I don't know. I mean, also, you know, film stars and, and authors and uh, Rudolf Nureyev. Astonishing. I mean, that guy was seriously fit, you know, I mean, to be doing what he was doing. Um, so, yeah, no, it was, it was quite brilliant. But then, with you know, um, different editors come in, it's a bit like, you know, managers of a football team. Mm. Suddenly you're, we don't want you there full back, we want you to go up front. Did, did, did you find your experience in music gave you an extra bit of ammunition in journalism where sometimes the subjects you're interviewing would want to ask you questions. Well, hey, you did this and you did that. You, you're friends with Phil Inner, you know. like Yeah, a, bit, a little bit of that occasionally. Um, and I'd sometimes people wouldn't know, but they'd sort of think they know or someone might have said something that they picked up wrongly. And I mean, I remember interviewing one famous American band and they, t- they thought that I'd actually played with Paul McCartney. I mean... So I didn't disabuse yeah, them. I was going to ask, did you? Yeah. <laughs> well, in actual fact, I think there were... I think a, did who, you play with him? And B, did you disabuse them? Well, whoever had said it, obviously it was talking about Henry McCullough. And Henry McCullough was a guitarist who played with Wings. And he was from the North and he was a friend of mine. And Henry and I had worked together. And uh, um, so anyway, it got obviously sent to a portman's. We're going to a dance, you know, send reinforcements. They got it confused. Um, but I didn't say anything. I just carried on. But no, by and large, you wouldn't try and talk about yourself in interviews because I mean, you'd just be wasting time. Mm. You'd be trying to get as much information out of them as could you have. As a journalist, I had to fill the space, you know. Um, but uh, so I'm sort of thinking, yeah, so then a different editor's came, you know, would say, listen, would you, would you do this? Would you do that? And so on. Uh, and I wound up sort of doing news features, covering a lot of stuff up, 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 up in the north, obviously, yeah. You know, prisoners uh, release and and uh, you know victims and all that sort of carry on dreadful stuff really. Um, and actually, how in fact how I started writing about boxing in in the Herald was I'd been in FM one hundred four at lunchtime one day, and a guy said to me, one of the sports guys, I think it was Adrian Eames, said said to me at the time, "Are you going to the press conference?" And I said, um, and I wasn't writing sport in the Herald at the time either. It was just in the occasional feature. And uh, I said, no, which one? What, what press conference is this? And he says, the Collins Eubank press conference. I said, no, oh, that would be interesting. As a punter, you know. Yeah. I, I said, right. I said, where is he? He said, it's out in Jewish Hotel at the Intercontinental in Bowles Bridge at one o'clock. And it was about 20 to 1. So I said, right, excellent, thanks. I was out the door like a shot, hopped on the bus, and in I went to the press conference. And as it turned out... Collins Collins was late, so you were around? He was was outside having his photo taken. When I came in, he shouted, how are you able? And I I saw him, and he was parked on the the bonnet of a Jaguar, and he had a wolfhound and a shillelagh, for God's sake. And... uh, so I'm really delighted. So I, was, I didn't hang around. I just flew in and I got in, you see. But all the seats were taken. And uh, um, Eddie, not, not Eddie Hearn, his dad, was, was at the top table. And Eubank was there and he was twitching because he was being kept waiting. So I'm standing along at the back and I'm standing beside a guy who I didn't know who he was. right? And a man 
Anyway, then this friend Steve comes in and then the whole thing starts and start laughing at you like he doesn't like this at all, you see. But then there was it became there was a that contentious thing about him betraying his people in Africa and all that, right? Playing up to be a good Englishman, he's and, yeah. And and you know, why are you betraying your yeah, why are you betraying your people and all this sort of you dressing like an Englishman? He said, But I am English. <laughs> and I with the crowd and let him off the hook, they were hooting at him, you know. So he stormed out and I oh no. I realized that this was going to get really rough. And I, I sort of went, oh, Christ. And the guy beside me looked at me and he said, oh, yeah. And that took, the man turned out to be John Wishhausen. Right. And uh, so anyway. Um, matchmaker I, for Matchroom Sport. And he was Matchroom, yeah. Matchroom, of course. Mr. made the fight. Mr. Matchroom, yeah. yeah. So anyway, so I scooted up to the side of the stage because I got the, the rostrum because I knew there was going to be a barn. And... Uh, Chris Eubanks stormed out. And, but it all blew up afterwards, right? Because that, um, that evening, he, he got down in the lift and he was in the lift with the Lord Mayor, John Gormley of the Green Party. Mm. And Gorm- like Gormley didn't misjudge the situation entirely. And he turned to Eubanks and he said, What? I suppose I, are you going sightseeing in a lovely city this evening, you see, this afternoon? And he was, Furious at being ridiculed, you know, and and he took it as a racial slur, by the way, as well, and and uh, so he looked at the Lord and says, "Fuck the city," and there was a journalist from the Indo there, a woman, and she, straight away it was a headline, right? And then the next morning, Eubank calling, "Fuck Dublin," <laughs> yes, I know precisely, and the next morning uh, it it was. Gay Bourne's radio program had it on. And I think they had Mel on, Mel Crystal of the Boxing Union of Ireland. I mean, it was it was getting really heated, yeah. really serious. And um, but but however, before, before the next morning, so I arrive home and I get a phone call. Blissfully unaware. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I, that evening I arrive, I arrive home, right? I'm having my dinner, and the phone rings, and it's FM 104, and the Chris Barry phone show. Oh, yeah, was on, right? And a guy called Leon, who's the researcher, says, Eamon, I said, hi, listen, Chris Barry is on talking about this this business today with, with Steve Collins and Chris Eubank. And he, you, we believe you are there. Would you like to come on and talk about it? I said, no, no, you're grand. I just have me dinner. <laughs> he said, I know why I am. Come on, you can't let us down. You know, he said, I said, all right, okay, put me on. So anyway, I patched through to live on air, right? And I could hear Chris Barry saying, no, I believe Steve Collins was dressed like a leprechaun. <laughs> and then there was some, you know, phone-in shows, lunatics, yeah, right? Yeah, absolute headers, and, space offers. And this guy was sort of going, no, 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 Ireland, blah, blah, blah. So, well, hold on a second. We have a man who was there, Evan Carr. He said, I'm dragged into this. <sighs> Nothing worse. And I said, he was dressed, <laughs> and I said, he was dressed in tweeds. I think it was probably Louis Coleman. <laughs> anyway, uh, so, he kept, they just kept needling, you know, and he was saying, was he racist? And I said, no, I don't know. No, look, I said, look, he said. Eubanks upset. He said what he said. Yeah, yeah. I said, uh, was, no, was Steve, been, was Steve been racist about it? I said, no, I said, he, look, I said, he was ill-informed. I said, you know, Chris Eubanks was born in Peckham, you know, so no point in saying you were born in Africa or whatever. I said, because it was very confusing. And, um, 
And I got off the phone as quick as I could. And so I'm resuming, he read it, and then the phone rings again, and it's Leon. And he says to me, Hi, Eamon. I said, Hi, Leon. <laughs> he says, uh, Steve Collins wants a word with you. <laughs> and I thought, it was, I thought he was messing, yeah. you see. And next thing, I just punched back live in on air. And the, there's Steve saying, have I got my hands on Eamon Carr? <laughs> and I said, hold on. And your man says, but he's on the line. And I go, what? What was said? You're letting down your rock and roll history, I, Eamon. Well, no, I hadn't got the radio on, so I didn't know what was being said. So anyway, I said, oh, Jesus. I said, lads. And uh, he said, you said I was a I said, I didn't say that. I said, Steve, if you listen to that bloody tape, I actually said, you made a mistake. That new baby was born in London. You're grand. Anyway, uh, so I managed to, but the problem was, uh, what's his name? That the presenter was sort of Chris Barry was sort of you know oh, he was getting the yeah. thing going. So he, so I said, listen. By the way, he says, Chris, hold on a second. You realise these two boxers are managed by the same guy, Barry Hearn. I said, it's, this is show business we're talking here. I mean, the boys are trying to sell tickets, and of course that. The conversation that went completely different, you know, and that was it. it was that's, that's the way it went, and um, it was grand. And so there was no. Steve was cool, and I said, "Steve, listen." I said, "Best you, you can do now. It's just put this out of your head. I'll obviously, concentrate on the fight, and just." Keep eating the steaks and yeah. <laughs> drinking the orange juice. Like you, you've covered Irish boxing since then, effectively, Eamon. And essentially, yeah. And that's that's one of the chapters that kicks off your your new book, Show Business of Blood. Like, if you could go back and cover any era that before your time was, would it be McGuigan for you? You'd go back to because, personally speaking, Collins's career and those fights with Eubank and Ben were before my time, and I'd yeah, love, yeah, to, yeah, I'd yeah. love to have been at those and, and covered those ones. Because wouldn't it have been fantastic? I mean, the, one of the one of the. Um, I mean, Jerry Callan has written the Barry, uh, yeah, Barry McGuigan book. book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you know the one that I really liked as well is Jim Sheridan. Yeah. And leave the fighting to McGuigan. Leave yeah. the fighting to McGuigan. And it sounds like a sort of a pot boiler or something, but it's actually a, a great little book. And he had great access. Yeah. He spent he spent a long time with him, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. And yeah. it's 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 the access. I think that's what makes it a good read yeah. and makes it exciting. And if you're a fly on the wall um, and you're sort of, you know, you're just, you're, you're, you're sort of picking up all the stuff. Do you stuff. know, Jim? Have you ever talked to him about it? I've never spoken to him about it, no. But as you probably remember the night uh, of one of the McGuigan, uh, sorry, one of, Barry had invited Jim back to the hotel after one of the Frampton fights. It must be the world. No, would it? Wasn't, no, it wasn't. It wasn't I never got invited back to the hotel. No, 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 no. We, we all, did you I get those invites? No, we did. We, 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 <laughs> we well, blagged we, in. We were there. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, we went upstairs. It was in the um, it, the, the, one the Europa the, Hotel. Yeah, the Europa. Say, yeah. yeah. We went up to the main lobby, and sure, everybody was there at the time, right? What is it? You can't get a pint in Belfast past. And it was hard. Yeah, they've always had that Ridiculous. sort of thing. So sure, of course, we ended up in there. Yeah, and but I remember, I remember that night. The next thing we were, Barry was over at the corner and, and Frampton's gang were over in the corner. And we were basically trying, pushing away to the bar, essentially. Pretty much. And the next thing, who's coming towards me in a dress suit? Only Jim. And so it was great. I mean, it was great to, to see him and to, and to know that he was there and, and that he'd obviously still 
kept in touch with Barry, you know, um, and that he had had that interest. So he, you know, and he's gone out of his way to be there. One assumes. Um, so yeah, so th- that that suggests that you know that, that that they had remained friends. But it must have been, it must have been an astonishing time, you know, it must have been. Really amazing, you know. Um, Everyone has scenes they always have, like even the Irish rock scene in the seventies. Can you tell us a bit about your time with horseships and stuff? Because one of our former colleagues, Kieran Gallagher, was texting me. I was telling him I was coming to talk to you today, and he's like, "You have to ask him about Philo. You have to ask him about Philo." And he wants, you know, that seventies era in Irish rock. What was that like for you? See, I was. This sounds ludicrous, but I was absolutely devastated. Philip died. And I surprised, I actually surprised myself that I was, I remember being back in Bloom's Hotel and we were all in, for some reason or other, we were, everybody was hanging around, when I say everybody, it's a rock and roll Ireland I'm talking about, were hanging around Bloom's Hotel that weekend. The Pogues were in town. The Pogues were doing a few gigs. They'd done Dublin. They probably went out of Dublin and did one or two gigs down the country, but they were using Bloom's as their base. And the, the Blooms became the sort of command centre, you know, and you could drink late. And so there was guys, that, friends of Frank Murray's who were in bands, uh, friends of Philip Chevron, friends of the Pogues, Paul McGuinness. I remember Paul dropped me home that night. Um, and the word had come through that Philip had died, you know, and a bunch of us went went up Terry O'Neill and people that I would have worked with the early Thin Lizzy, we were all there. And it was like a sort of like an instant wake without a body, you know. And I remember I remember I actually sort of found myself crying in the fucking hotel, you know, at fucking twelve o'clock at night or something. Possibly tired and emotional though. Um, but and I remember Terry O'Neill sort of looking at me as much as hey, geez, what's what's with you? Um, but when they would have been, you know, worked maybe closer with Philip. But Philip Philip, he was a remarkable, remarkable individual. Uh, we, I had, I had seen him. Uh, I'd seen him at Skid Row with Bruce Shields, um, and I remember the day, in fact, that see, I to put context, in, put some sort of context in this, right? I had gone over to Liverpool in the mid-60s on the, on the old cattle boat, literally the cattle boat, because I wanted to get to what I consider to be the centre of this big phenomenon that was, that was only breaking. That was the Beatles, obviously, but also the Mersey Beat. All these brilliant bands were coming out of, out of Liverpool, coming out of Manchester. And then there was the whole London thing, Newcastle, the Animals, Birmingham, the Move, and so on. So I went over on the I went over on the ferry boat. Now I had no money, but what I'd done was I'd run in in sports tournaments and actually got prizes and sold the prizes and actually put together a little small amount of money, but enough for a ferry ticket and enough a certain amount of food. A professional sportsman. Yeah, is that weird? Yeah, yeah. Second in the hundred yards, at yards, mind. Um, I surprised myself uh, by doing well in the 440 and the 220, which, you know, and I always thought I'd be a miler, but I wasn't. So anyway, um, so wound up, anyway, 
in Liverpool and, you know, down to the Cavern Club. Um, first, you know, first day. And it was the old cavern, proper Cavern Club up a laneway, down the cellar, all that sort of stuff. And the man on the door of the Cavern Club, and I didn't know it at the time, was really nice. And when he saw me the second night, he, he sort of started talking to me. And he realised I'd come up from Dublin, and you know, and I must be a bit of a headbanger if I'm there on a Monday night, on a Tuesday night, yeah. you know. And he said, You passed the test. He says, come back yeah. tomorrow night. So yeah, no, but I, he let me in free. So he let me in for a dead every night. And it turned out, I discovered later that his name was Paddy Delaney, that he was of Irish extraction. And so the Irish, you know, the Irish Murphia was already in existence. And so I met all these bands and musicians and so on. But more, more importantly for me, I met these guys uh, who were poets. And But they were sort of like beat poets, Adrian Henry, uh, Roger McGough, Amazing, Roger still uh, doing the business on BBC, um, and Mike Evans, and so I mean it's really embarrassing to think about it now. But I actually I, I saw McGough then, you know, having seen him at a, at a reading the night before and all this sort of stuff, you know, in a home called O'Connor's uh, at around twelve o'clock in the day, reading the paper, having a sandwich and a pint. And I did the unpardonable thing of approaching him and uh, say, excuse me, you know. And he was very, very cool, really friendly. And uh, I said, would you mind having a look at some of my writing? Oh, think of it now. And I took out a bloody <laughs> copybook with absolute tr drivel. And he was really cool, and he read it, and, uh, and he said, oh, well, very good, you know, you're showing signs here and all this sort of stuff. And he gave me great encouragement, right? Yeah, yeah. I, now, I didn't realize that he'd been a teacher, so he understood how to go about it, you know. And uh, so anyway, I went over to pet my stride. I was a poet already. <laughs> and, and I came back to Dublin. And, uh, and that, that happened to me in a beer garden a few weeks ago. All right. I was sitting there with my friend having a pint and a fellow over in the corner knows him, a journalist, and came over with his manuscript and whipped it out and read that one and read that one. I was like, uh, just trying to have a quick pint here. I know, I know. All the encouraging noises. Yeah, that, well, no, no. Well, that's very kind of you. you know, but Hopefully I mean, this guy starts a rock band and lots, a journalist. And no, and lots of people could turn around and sort of say, would you go back off, <laughs> yeah, right? Know, yeah, yeah. If you don't back off, I'll burst you. But anyway, no, McGough was really great. So anyway, I came back to Dublin and I said, I'd love to have something like that going on here, you know? Of what the scene that I've been experiencing. Now, this wasn't the first year. I think I've gone over on a regular basis. And uh, so, anyway, I started this thing called Tara Telephone, Peter Fallon and myself. And we had a, we used to run a poetry workshop, which is like a singer songwriter night without the singing, and uh, up in Parnell Square. And, uh, and then we started publishing little uh, small uh, chapbooks as they are now. And, um, Lo and behold, we had this idea. I had this idea for putting poems and posters and putting them up on walls and stuff. So I contacted this guy who, who I discovered, uh, when I discovered this guy lived in Ireland, which I didn't believe he did. The guy who did the Che Guevara poster, the famous one, Jim Fitzpatrick, Jim Fitzpatrick Irish. Yeah. And Jim was delighted. Yeah, I met Jim. So we met for lunch, had a pint. I said, yeah, that's a great idea. So we started doing poetry posters, right? And uh, then he designed the covers. And, and it was a great little scene. And we added music to the thing. And, 
And eventually we had Declan Sinnott in, involved. And so on. it was great. Andrew Robinson of St. Sepulchre's Consort. And so, so that was where I was coming from, right? So then, and like, <laughs> uh, the Russian people, you see, used to sort of look at it and say, oh, a bit of poetry and music, because they weren't quite sure if it fitted in or if it did or what it was or, you know. Down from the Glen came the marching men. <laughs> so there was a sort of a vibe. And uh, I mean, I was with Brush and the first day that Gary Moore came down off the train from Belfast to play with Skidders, you know, and Skid Row. And, um, and then Philip was in Orphanage. And so I would, again, we, we were in a similar sort of orbit, right? Um, and then, you know, I think Philip was saying one day, he said, to me, hey, what's, what's the story of the poetry, you know? And I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, these readings and that. And I said, we just uh, sit around. And if somebody says, have you got any, any new stuff you want to read? Yeah, yeah, read it. Okay. And then we just go, yeah, that's cool or whatever, you know. And it's just a sounding board. We're checking out ideas and, and it gives us something to aim for and stuff. I said, you should come down. At that stage, you were doing it in a place called the Arts uh, Society, which was a muse at the back of Trinity that was owned and run by Trinity. And it's gone now. It's, it's, it's subsequently knocked down. It's a big office block on her. Yeah. yeah, whatever. And uh, a hotel so I, I said, do you want to come? I said, you should just come down, you know. And Philip's line was, will there be chicks there? <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, loads of women. Yeah, yeah, come down. So, and I said, you want to I said, just hang around, I says, at the back. And if you think you want to do something, just give me the nod. I says, and, you know, I'll just introduce you. And he did, right? And brought Eric Bell with him. And, uh, and of course, everybody thought all the women loved him, right? And he was great. But this was the interesting thing. I mean, his, 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 his lyrics, well, I knew them to be pop poetry anyway, you know, because um, he could write. And so, the, we, you know, we just we used to discuss that. And he, he had an interest in the beat poets as I had as well. And so we used to kick it, uh, ideas, for want of a better word, around, or just the, th just the thing, you know. And so anyway, but the funny thing is then the next day I went into the Bailey and Philip was at the bar. And I swear, I mean, he was some boy. He was there and he was chatting to him and he said, oh, I was reading poetry in Trinity College last night. <laughs> and uh, I thought, oh, fuck, you know. Anyway, tremendous. And then, like, the weird thing was that over the years, um, and around then... Everyone called them yates from then on. That yeah, was no, I don't know about that, but at the time, so... Things, yeah, so horse have started up then, right? So we used to go and, see, and look at Thin Dizzy, mm. you know, go out and, and stand beside the stage and see how it was done, you know, because we, we were just making it up. Yeah, I think I saw, was a comment from you or someone recently that there was a, a large size of imitation or almost, was there a satirical kind of angle or was it, no, wait, is that too strong? No, 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 it was, no, it was more the mechanics yeah. of, of, the physicality of a thing, you know, of of a drum kit on stage and a bass player and a guitarist, and it was really about presentation. It wasn't really about what they were doing, because um, we didn't know what we were doing, but except we were just taking Irish tunes and having fooling around with them. That's essentially what we were doing, um, and 
But then we had a single and it sort of took off. And then Philip and, the, and, and Lizzie had moved to London. And, and then they, their whiskey and the jar was a big hit for them. But that was a B-side of a record. And it was of a single and initially. And that saved a bacon in a way because they had done... They were on the third album, yeah. and they were, you know, possibly about to be dropped. And this took off, and it opened up the whole thing for them. And then, meanwhile, our thing was a completely separate thing. They were a proper rock band, but they early on they were doing Jimi Hendrix numbers and all that sort of stuff as well. And so, uh, but then we were both in London, you know, and it was a little bit of running around in London as you would. And and Gary Moore had his own band in London as well. So there was a whole little pocket of Irish Irishness going on. But mind you, you weren't in London all the time because you were on tour. If you were ba- you could be based in London, but you'd be up and down the country. Um, and um, where did I go with this one? And then a different lifestyle than the Irish in London who were the navvies and stuff. That's yeah, although sure. it wasn't if, yes, yes and no. I mean but like I remember when Henry McCullough's band went to London first, which was in the 60s. You see, there was no infrastructure. The infrastructure was very different. And the music business infrastructure. And they went over. And they were living in a van. Mm. And they used to park the van under Vauxhall Bridge. And they played in some nightclub somewhere, the Baganel or somewhere. And who saw them? Only Jimi Hendrix. Hendrix saw them. And, and the, the, the three bands in Dublin in the 60s that you would, you would well, four that you might want to go and see. Um, it was Skid Row. But Skid Row were a rock band. But then you had Granny's Intentions from Limerick, who were like a soul band. And they had, they had two singers. It was like a Sam and Dave sort of thing going on. Brilliant. Really, really good band. And then you had the people who were from the north of Henry McCullough. They were a super band, the rhythm section, then went on to play with Mark Boland later on. But the people, but those three bands, they were, I mean, there were others. It was uh, Ditch Cassidy's band, the King Bees and so on. But there were a number of really, really good bands. But again, there was no music business infrastructure. And to, to, to channel them, to, to get the talent away. So, so, it took a while for Thin Lizzy for eventually to break through. Uh, the people went over. I would have put money on them because they were really, really tremendous. They mightn't have had the songwriting smarts. That was the only thing. Hendrix saw them and was blown away. He went and got his manager, Charles Chandler, to come and see them. He signed them. And they went out on tour with Hendrix and the Pink Floyd. You know, and Hendrix produced their album. And the management changed the name of the band, The People, to Era Apparent. Era? Era Apparent. These were three Presbyterian guys from the north of Ireland, right? But back then, it did, you know, it didn't matter in the music you, industry, yeah. it didn't matter to, you know, none of the musicians were That's called up on the... the people. People, was, people, people was a great name it's at the time, name, yeah. you know. Um, but it was you're into around 67 where sort of, you know, Suit Money's band became Dantalian's Chariot and, you know, that sort of madness. And um, But anyway, so Henry didn't like the vibe and he, he didn't like the musical vibe and he left. And then he wound up, with came over here, back over here, he started playing with Sweeney's Men and then was with them maybe for a summer and then Joe Cocker 
took him on board. And he was the only Irishman to play in Woodstock. Um, so, and where was I going with this? Oh, yeah. So then years later, then off we go again, and we're in America. And, and Lizzie have had a few stop starts in America. We always had bad luck. Um, and, you know, I remember one night we had a night off somewhere and Lizzie were playing something like 40 miles away in Detroit or whatever it was. And so we went to see them. And it was, you know, it was one of those bizarre, poignant moments where, you know, we arrived backstage or whatever. And then Philip goes, hey, we're going to a corner. And it's like, I'm trying to think what year this was, probably about 78. So like, that's only 70, 71. 70, 71, we would have been knocking around the streets together, basically, you know, um, going to clubs, you know, late at night after hours, that sort of thing. And in Dublin, without an arse in our trousers. And with a lot of, not a well, sort of ambition, you know. And um, suddenly here we are in Detroit. They're headlining, we're headlining. And it's like, fuck me, look at us. Wow, who would have thought? It was that sort of moment, you know, and, and it was more, it felt really more important to him than it did at the time, you know. And, and so we had these really intense, well, one of the better words, shared uh, moments and shared experiences. And sort of later on then, it's only like two years later on, early 80s, um, I found it was difficult to talk to him because he was in the throes of addiction. Yeah. And your inclination and your instinct, obviously, is to sort of say, listen, man, you know, you should try and fucking get it together because you're fucking, you know, things up. And this is only going to go one way. But as soon as you, as soon as you start having any sort of conversation like that, uh, you become persona non grata. And... I, I sort of always sort of felt that, you know, sort of when Elvis Presley died, I remember thinking, how come nobody ever fucking said Elvis? <laughs> you know, do you want to, do you want to talk, you know, this, this is, you're on a slippery slope here. Mm. Um, but instead of that, people, you know, uh, people are giving them prescription medication and, and enormous amounts of it. So, so I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't even sure at that stage. I, I kept out of Philip's orbit then. I'm, actually, I mean, to be honest, I mean, I remember one day he crossed the street, and you know that pissed me off. But I understood why he crossed the street because he sort of didn't want to fucking confront me. Yeah, the mirror. Yeah, be yeah, because he was high and he had women with him and all that. And, and he would have thought that I might have been hassling him or even, he, I wouldn't even. Or told him the I truth, told him the truth. Well, no, I wouldn't. I, I already did that. And so you don't, you can't just yeah. be harping onto people all the time, you know. No. So anyway, so anyway, it was just such a fucking waste. Um, just such a waste. So fucking sad. Um, because he was, you know, obviously really, like we were in the studio, we'd been in the studio together in 1969. 1969. Um, and you know, so we we did work. You know, we did work. We had sort of ideas. It was more about ideas. We were sharing ideas, and and a lot of it was 
I suppose in a I suppose in a sense his his idea really was that he wanted to be a star, right? I mean, I mean, I I was that was in my league at all, essentially, you know, what I really wanted to do. Um, and it's juvenile, it sounds a bit juvenile now, but I actually wanted to try and shake things up because, you know, I come from Kells, I come from County Mead, and, you know, it, you just, and, you know, you, and I would have grown up sort of slightly pre-Beatles, pre-Stones, and then the Stones thing happened. So that 60s thing was really important to me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Swing in London, Carnaby Street, all of that sort of stuff. Terry Downs, you know what I mean? There was a whole sort of thing yeah. going on. Um, Muhammad Ali, obviously, you know, it's, Muhammad Ali was part of that whole thing as yeah. well. And and so, and, and our enemy fighting them in, in England and so on. So, I was going to say, Eamon, as well, in your in your job with the horses, you, you said you wanted to shake them up, to really shake them up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, obviously, you had a you had a hand writing the seminal song, Jared Dune, or did you? you well, well, the whole idea was, the, well, the, idea, the whole idea was basically, as far as I was concerned, was to try and shake up the status yeah. quo. And, and um, yeah, so we, we, we started... Um, uh, Horses, because we wound up in a TV commercial together, right? As an imaginary band, and then we went afterwards. We went to a coffee uh, for a coffee, and it was a, the Golden Egg or something like that in Suffolk Street. And so we're sitting around having a laugh. I said that was great, crack. And I said, yeah, wouldn't it be cool if we were to see if we could actually knock out a few tunes together? Because we were just standing around miming, we weren't playing in the ad. And so we 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 started getting together then. And then there was a little bit of you know acoustic music, and there was a little bit of Irish traditional stuff, and there was a little bit of rhythm and blues, a little bit of acoustic blues. And we landed a TV thing, and we auditioned and we got it. And then we got we went became electric for that, and. Um, it was just experimentation. It was still experimentation, and and but it, it got legs, and so after we did the first album, and and for the first album we didn't go to London. So there were two options: you go to London or you record it here. And if you record it here at the time, there were only a few studios, and they weren't really they were all right, but they weren't state of the art. So. From reading the music papers, we realized that the Rolling Stones had recorded Eggs on a Main Street in the south of France on the Rolling Stones mobile studio. And it was back in London. Right. What so we album. thought, yes, oh no, it's my favorite Stones album. And I thought, wouldn't, surely, Let's but see. we'll try Let's it. Yeah, because you know, somebody else had hired it. Mm. We, knew, we knew somebody had hired it. But to hire it in Ireland in this early 70s, at which stage there was already the troubles were happening in the north of Ireland and bands had stopped coming in. Before that, bands like Fleetwood Mac, The Who, Yes, Ginger Baker's Air Force, Jethro Tull, all these bands that played the stadium. National Stadium, yeah. As did you. As, yeah, but later on. Later on, yeah. Later on. Well, I actually appeared on, in, the, in this National Stadium reading poetry as a support act to Fleetwood Mac and Ginger Bay, I think 
yeah, Ginger Baker, yeah, Air Force. Um, so anyway, as it turns out, um, where was it going with us? Yeah, so anyway, yeah, so, so, so we yeah, rang yeah, up yeah, and, yeah. and said, could you just lend us your studio? I know, we'd like to hire your studio. And they said, yeah, cool. Great. And then this thing came over. We hired a house down in, in um, Tipperary, a big old house, and uh, parked it outside and ran the wires in the window and pubbed your uncle. We had a studio because uh, it was just a control room. You could put the microphones in here, you know. It's all changed now. Obviously, everything's digital. But at the time, it was good and, and it meant we could control what we were doing. Then we went over and mixed the album in uh, Olympic Studio in Barnes, which is this studio that the, the Stones used. Um so sort of that worked out, but we need to move on to a second record. So at that stage, um, we'd been fooling around, or rather earlier on, we'd been asked to do music for a soundtrack, as I said, back in music for a play about the time that was to go on in the Abbey, right? And we'd, we'd started to just put together some sort of musical stuff for it. And it never really happened, right? Because the show didn't go ahead. And, but I was sort of thinking that there might be something, maybe we had a few bits and pieces there that we could recycle, essentially. So Copy, paste. Uh, yes, back to that. <laughs> and that might give us a bit of a head start on the second album. And, but also there was a, concept albums with prog rock bands were sort of in vogue if you know around that time what's this now 73 72 anyway and so so we thought maybe we could actually sort of tell the story as an as you know it's it's a it's a rock and roll it's a good gutsy story queen this handsome you know whatever lunatic uh Cullen and a lot of fighting and see what we do. And so, yeah, so I started to map out that. And a lot of this was, I mean, the lads would be all nightclubbing. And of course, I was the Egypt who basically was sitting at home mapping out schemes, you know, trying to figure out how to tell the yarn, but it was, it was a challenge. And uh, some of the songs were, came together okay, but you really wanted a killer track. And then one day, Johnny Fien was sitting in the corner and he was just fooling around with his guitar and he was playing little riffs and bits and pieces. And I heard this little thing and I said, what was that? Johnny, hello, play that again. So he went back and he played this riff. I said, fuck, Jesus, Johnny, that's brilliant. What is it? And he said, oh, it's the March of the King of Leash or something. I said, I know that shit. That's that's not it. But it sort of was it. But he'd done something with it. He sort of flattened it out or he changed the the emphasis or something. Anyway, I just thought that's a powerful riff. It's just a rock and roll riff. So I said, You won't forget it. I was worried he might forget yeah, it. Of course, yeah. And he said, No, it's a tune. I said, Well, okay. But I, I I said, But what do you how whatever you're doing with it, you won't forget. It. He said, No, no. I said, so, can we work that into a song? I said, yeah. I said, I think I think we might need to make that the main centerpiece, yeah. you know. And so then Kukulin, they couldn't go around singing about Kukulin and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, and I look back at it now, I think, well, why, you know, why did I say Jarrow Doom? Why did I say I, why did I use an Irish word? And I think, you know, if, if I just use something more straightforward, um, 
I don't know, like Voodoo Man or something like that. It might have been more accessible, international, international yes, thing. Yes. But it didn't matter, actually. Um, it was what it was. And, and the Irish t- flavor obviously identified as something different. And it just sounded weird anyway. So it sounded like something of a comic. So anyway, so that was essentially... Yeah, so I wrote that lyric as well and um, shaped up this, the song. But then it was really bizarre then, obviously, because, you know, the Boxer Union of Ireland's emblem uh, logo is is the Cucullin statue, where he's strapped to the rock. Yeah. Um, the, the, the shepherd uh, statue that's in the GPO. So that sort of tied that in as well. It was really... So there were all these strange synchronicities and weirdnesses and all that. But I tell you, when we used to play in the stadium in the 70s, everybody complained about the bouncers. I mean, you know, because the stewarding was always done by staff, right? People mm. were involved. And the whole vibe was you weren't meant to get up and jump around out of your seat. I mean, had to stay in their seats. And these just kids. And so, I mean, every time we played, I mean, you know, and I think it was the same for Rory Gallagher, you know, whoever else played there at the time. Um, kids would stand up, and as soon as they stand up, then the boys would wade in and take them out. And I don't know if there were a few clappers thrown. I often wonder who those people were, you know, but at the time, you know, you, you were just coming out, getting on stage, you know, concentrating on your gig, doing your gig. But then, then you'd hear all these dreadful stories afterwards from kids, and that you were just kind of thrown out or you know, uh, pushed around or whatever it was. You, you look know. back at your time covering boxing, Eamon, like what would you see as like the, the rock and roll years of, of boxing? What, what would stand out to you? The, maybe the latest nights or the, the most crack you had covering the fights? No, the thing that always struck, well, Brian Peters always put on a, a cracking show, yeah. didn't he? I mean, that was, he well, understood. Celtic mysticism shite, he'd say. Whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mean it, he'd, loving me, I think. He'd, no, no, he always <laughs> had, he always had, it was, it was so funny. He, he always put thought into it. And he, and, and he always sort of gave the impression that he didn't put thought into it, oh, yeah. you know. But he did, he worked it. And he, and he always had to have, he always tried to have title fights. Um, he was always trying to bring new talent through. Um, and, and, and if you remember, he always tried to have sort of celebrity faces from the world of sport present and all of that stuff. I mean, that was all that was all good, but it was just always a great sense of occasion, especially with visiting coaches and visiting trainers. And, um, no, it was great. And, and press conferences, press conferences where you would have Jerry Callan and people referring to Jerry. You know, Brian asked Jerry Callan from the roster, would we be right in saying that Laszlo Papa, well, you know what I mean? yeah, yeah. And Jerry would just conjure up statistics yes. out of the blue. I just sitting there. Ridiculous going, man to work alongside. Oh, yeah. wow, man. <laughs> just, just astounding. Um, but a so, great help, a great help to everybody anyway. Oh, certainly to me. Always, absolutely. Always you, can, you can forgive him for looking left and right and going, they are pretenders, but never, never had that attitude. No, but he was always most encouraging. Yes. You know, absolutely. and that was the point. He was always most encouraging. I mean, like, if we could, if we could do that to other people and give that back, and yeah, that, that's always been, I think, the objective. Um, did you find when you started covering it, did you get, um, did you get a good kick from the sport? Yeah, like maybe something from from the past, like you you've been involved in music, and you know, did you find it 
boxing kind of high octane that has maybe satisfied something in you? Well, I'll tell you an interesting one, right? I covered a lot of sport as well prior to, you know, covering boxing. So I, you know, uh, maybe even simultaneously. But so around football, association football, mm. right? And big clubs in England or international matches and all that sort of stuff, right? Um, and even to an extent, the GEA, although the GEA also, to be fair, the individuals always were approachable and accessible and so on, by and large. But then there was something started to creep in there that became more corporate. Yeah, to its detriment. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But with boxing, I mean, I was very tentative initially when I started doing stuff in boxing as a journalist. And I always, you know, you, you would defer to people. And because you always felt that there were some sort of unwritten protocols and so on. There weren't. That was astonishing. You were welcome. This was, I mean, I, I really can't uh, overstate this. No, I, I think we were made really welcome by, not just by the boxers, but by the coaches as well. And, and, and promoters, there's some promoters were as efficient as arranging the stuff around fights. Yeah. Um, but by and large, we were really, I just thought we were really well received. And, and I always still find it astonishing that we could walk in and talk to fighters who just after going through 10 or 12 rounds of, you know, really intense action. And, Ten minutes later, you're talking to them. That would never happen. I mean, you couldn't go and talk to a musician after a gig, but, you know, as a rule, straight away anyway. Um, certainly in football, very difficult. Um, they give you your time as, as long as you need it or want it, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 so that only added, that only added, for, for me anyway, um, just a total admiration for them, you know, the, the, the amount of effort. But, but the intensity of the experience as well. That's that's that access point that you make. You yeah, know, access straight after the fight and stuff. It's ebbed away, hasn't it? It's it's not quite there anymore. I find it's. Yeah, well, I can't say in the last few years because, to be honest, I haven't been at anything since yeah, well, co I, since I, COVID. So, I hate to tell so. You, since the um, the way you get treated now is you you sit in your kind of your media section yeah, yeah. you're roped in effectively you don't really get to speak to the boxers much afterwards if there's a, if they have the kindness in yeah, the yeah, yeah, sure. to organize a press conference you'll go and maybe get to chat to them for a couple of minutes or sometimes they won't show up to yeah, the press yeah. conference yeah yeah and then that's it fuck off now you yeah know? yeah um, and the the youtubers who go along with the camera phones they get the one to one access throughout and well that needs to be an exclusive access and the writers are kind of just thrown in together it's not quite the same as, uh, but we'll discuss that later, but it's it's not quite the same as even 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, as I said, since before, since, well, if you remember, after the Regency, there really wasn't much he here. No. Um, up north was different. Um, but when, 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 when COVID came in, I mean, I'm under doctor's orders basically to avoid crowds. If I go into a crowded pub, if I, I'll pick up infection. So I'm in trouble. So, so, and if, if, if it happens to be COVID, I'm in bad, bad trouble. And, um, so, so like a bad flu will probably, you know, 
see me hospitalized these days. Um, so I've been, I haven't really been in the, that environment, you know, so for a while. So I really, I, you know, I don't go to each other. You're going to have a lot of readers, interested readers in Irish boxing. There's a, there's 16 chapters here. Well, I won't name them Oh yeah, yeah, no, no, no. The problem, well, we'll I name, write we'll 16. I'm going to ask you maybe, what was your favourite chapter to write or which one? Oh, I, 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 can I reel them off here, Raymond? So the first chapter, Warrior, is presumably Wayne McCullough in his time. Oh, sorry, Warrior, that's Steve Collins in his time. Then Pocket Rocket. Number three, Sergeant. So I presume that covers up. Michael Carruth. The bulk of Carruth for The Phantom Puncher. Bernard. Bernard. Dazzler. Darren you Sutherland, see, but well, the ones that you mentioned, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not blowing a trumpet here around like that. But, the, but each of those... Each of those is a, I think, is a phenomenal story in itself. Each of those is a documentary in yeah. itself. And I, what I'm trying to, my, the toughest thing I had to do was to condense the stories and the information that I had around well, each Even like, well, fighter. number one, Collins, he had his autobiography out in the 90s. Yes, <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? yeah. Pocket rocket. But you see, the stuff that, the stuff that I have, yeah, is not is not in his biography. Oh, no, that was a different different kettle of fish. He renounced his own biography, I think. Understand? Did he? Oh, well, slightly. I'm not too sure. He think he, put, I, he think he put artistic license in the hands of his author, and his author didn't want happy. Yeah. So well, he really wrote Roddy's book. Well, the story I would have told, the story I would have told um, here, is essentially, you know, getting a call. Do you want to do you want to come down and talk to him? You know, Chris Eubank will talk to you. He only going to do one interview after the debacle in Dublin and he'll do it with you if you come down so I went straight down to Brighton boxing hack on his way and here I am <laughs> hello and so we sat down and chatted and oh yeah sorry I'm actually bizarre look it's only funny you know we were sort of rabbiting on and he was he was so gracious and uh, you know so not the public image version of himself you know yeah. I, was, I bet I was getting something close to the real deal and uh, but he was really really uptight and angry and, 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 and so on and had been insulted and so on and so forth right anyway so you're going to deal with retribution so so as we were sort of talking away and I'm, I suddenly something about his demeanour and something about the fashion thing and all that although it was a tracksuit but I said to him, I said, you know something, I suddenly, it dawned on me, right, big age that I am, it oh, dawned on me. I said, Chris, I have it. I said, do you know, do you know what you are? And he's looking at me. And I said, a rude boy. And you see, and rude boy, Rudy, you know, and uh, that sort of uh, scar thing, you yeah. know, and uh, he was thrilled. He said, a rude boy. I shouldn't be doing that. You know, his accent is perfect. He said, "Yes, he said, I'm the proper rude boy." You know, and I'm right. I right. am the antithesis of a rude boy. Yeah, and there you go. <laughs> no, 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 that was exactly it, right? So anyway, so I think, oh yeah, that's good. So anyway, we were rabbiting away, and anyway, I said, I had to cut the interview short because there was a late edition of the hair. This was in the morning. I had flown in on the first flight at seven o'clock or something, so I had to. Scribble up a copy of a page three and ring, go into the corner and ring the Herald. So anyway, um, I did that. And then, you know, he headed home. I went into London and I'm sitting in a bar in Seoul and I'm watching, oh, he's going into, he said to me, he said, I'm going to be doing Sky Sports this evening. I had an interview. I said, oh, yeah, good. 
And so I'm in the pub and I'm watching the TV and he's talking to this guy. And the next thing is, he says, you know, you know what I am? He says to the guy, I can't remember who's interviewing. And he wants to know who he said, I'm a rude boy. <laughs> and, and I spluttered and I said, yeah, bollocks. That's my line. I'm a rude boy. And uh, anyway, just look at So that happened. And then, but then the next day, as luck would have it, I had already arranged to meet Steve, right? Because I'd arranged that two weeks earlier. That we were going to, I was going to do this face-to-face interview with Steve. But in the meantime, the press conference happened. And then this thing had blown up. And uh, so off I go to Romford, right? And I arrive out at Matchroom and I could see the lads. It was actually like, it was, I know, I say this like, you know, that's a bit of colour. It, it was like something from uh, The Sopranos, right? I arrive in the front office and there's lads sort of hanging around. And they're looking at me and saying, I said, yeah, oh, oh yeah, we've, we've been, where have you been? We've been trying to get you, you see, but it was just slightly pre-mobile or whatever, or if, if you had a brick of a mobile, I couldn't be arsed with that. So, um, so they'd been ringing Dublin looking for me and Dublin didn't know where I was. I'd gone off grid <laughs> and that's the old rock and roll thing again. And uh, so I said, no, I'm here now. It's cool. They said, well, I have a bit of a problem. I said, oh, no problem. Yeah. Steve just wanted the interview. And I said, oh. He said, he said, well, actually, you can't do the interview. I said, oh, yeah, well, that's cool. Don't worry about it. And I said, no, he's he's going to Vegas for training camp. Yes, yeah, he did, yeah. And, and I went, right. I said, well, look, I said, that makes sense. You know, just, you know, because this whole thing had really blown up. Big time here. There was, there was sort of talk that maybe you know, the sort of talk on the radio that maybe the fight might be abandoned and all this sort of cancelled or whatever. So, so, uh, but then he says, but, but he's left you a, a statement, and I went, oh fuck, thanks be to God, mm-hmm. that saves me bacon. Word count. So, no, well, no, I was this was a separate thing. Right. I don't have the radio there. Do you like this? Was, this was my Steve interviews. Yeah, I was come over to interview Steve. Yeah. I said like a two-page spread or something. So anyway, so, but at least I wasn't going back empty-handed, you know, but I had a written statement, which I still have on file. And uh, and it was basically just him sort of explaining, look, you know, um, this thing kicked off. It wasn't my fault, I'm sorry, but whatever, you know. And, you know, I, I help out a goal charities and all that sort of thing so not quite as succinct as fuck Brighton <laughs> yeah no 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 there was none of that I know to be fair there wasn't any of that yeah. and then so I went down to so he was he was speaking about the, the racism claim yeah yeah, yeah 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 all of that and so I went down to then sort of you know I, um, I, I went down for the for the fight and um, and that that, that 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 was a spectacle that was astonishing. Yeah. Now, that was astonishing, just as a spectacle. And so I'm not even sure what's in Steve's book about that. But look, I bring a different, whatever, I bring my perspective to that whole thing. Yeah. So it's a, so in other words, the stuff that's in the Steve chapter isn't the stuff that you would normally see no. in any of the Steve stuff. You know, it's a sort of, it's a little bit of a rock and roll version of, yeah. of events. And, and and it's the same with all of them. I mean, the color has his own book as well. Well, Pick up from there in part two.